Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. Hello and welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast. My name is Dr. Carolina Kupertetso, and I'm a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Glasgow. We have just kicked off the new academic year over here. And one focus of teaching-oriented academics is the increasing awareness of neurodiversity in education. So for today's podcast episode, I have invited an expert in that area and hope to get some insight about this very important topic. I'd like to welcome Dr. Chiara Holen, who is a lecturer at the University of Glasgow, but who also co-leads the Neurodiversity Network. I'm honored that she's here today to share her knowledge and experience of inclusivity in education and to tell us a bit more about her project. Welcome, Chiara. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and motivation for this topic? Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Dr. Chiara Holland, as Carolina mentioned. I'm a lecturer here at the University of Glasgow, but uh, as you can tell, I do not have a Scottish accent. I'm originally from Australia. I did my um, undergraduate and postgraduate studies at the University of Western Australia. And um, I started my teaching journey there as well before moving to Curtin University and um, going much deeper into a postdoctoral research, fe research fellowship with the Curtin Autism Research Group. This was a hugely formative experience for me. It was a really wonderful experience. Uh, and then I moved to Canada and I worked at a children's hospital there doing similar projects uh, before landing in Scotland and the University of Glasgow. Predominantly, my research interests have been around autism specifically for the past 15 or so years, but recently that's expanded to include everything under the neurodiversity umbrella, particularly ADHD, specific learning uh, differences, and it's also been accelerated by my own um, journey into a personal diagnosis of ADHD as well. So there are personal and professional motivations behind The journey that I've taken. Thank you so much for joining this podcast episode. In recent years, I have encountered the concept for um, of, of neurodiversity in different contexts. And in education, it is certainly a topic that is gaining more and more attention. However, it may not be clear to all what neurodiversity means and entails. So my question is, what is neurodiversity? Well, it's essentially a recognition that not all brains think, feel, or learn in the same way, and that these variations are natural variations within the human genome. The emphasis is really here about a discussion of difference rather than disorder, but sometimes obviously these differences can be disabling in specific contexts, uh, particularly those contexts that are not inclusive uh, or could be more inclusive. Uh, this is usually conceived as clustering diagnoses of autism, ADHD, specific learning differences, but increasingly we're recognizing a lot of other conditions under this umbrella, including anxiety, OCD, Even um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder has been discussed as being included. So the, the strict definition is very much expanding and evolving, uh, but largely the motivation and the movement and the community behind this idea are focusing on this idea of embracing difference rather than immediately categorizing things into disabilities and disorders. 
So in some ways then, neurodiversity is a much broader concept than one would maybe initially think. So and leading on from that, what are common misconceptions when it comes to neurodiversity and particularly in the context of education? Really, a lot of the emphasis um, has been historically on this idea of an inability or a disability rather than opening the discussion to uh, unique skills and unique assets that students and people can bring to the classroom, to the workplace, uh, or just to the community at large. It's um, <laughs> one of the common misconceptions is this idea of communication deficits or empathy deficits or deficits in interpersonal skills. And this is not necessarily the case. Often people might have challenges in these areas, but there is some more recent research that is opening up the idea that these are communication differences between people who are neurotypical and who are not neurotypical or neuroatypical. Uh, and this idea of there being an empathy deficit as well is very rigid uh, and very antiquated. And we're very much moving beyond that. Um, and so the conversations about disability and disadvantage needs to shift as well from being student-centered to being context-centered and really around how we educate. And this idea of the uh, prototypical student, we need to do away with this so that neurodivergent uh, students can fit within this environment as well. Some of the other misconceptions that come up quite a lot is a lack of awareness about the multiplicity of, of conditions as well. If you are neurodivergent, you're most likely to have at least one more diagnosis of either a neurodivergent condition, potentially a mental health condition. Often a lot of medical conditions seem to be comorbid and co-occurring. Uh, so there are multiple challenges that somebody might be experiencing rather than just focusing on one primary kind of condition. And um, one of the psychology misconceptions unfortunately, historically related to treatment and diagnosis, is that children don't grow out of these conditions. Mm -hmm. An autistic child is going to be an autistic adult. Uh, and this is particularly the case with ADHD. And even in my own country, support services and diagnosis ended at 18. And these people didn't receive anything, not because they suddenly aged out of having a diagnosis, but because the system really failed them in that Uh, in that circumstance. So these are neurodevelopmental conditions, but they aren't restricted to the early stages of development. Well, that's really interest interesting. And I think um, we're going to talk about that a bit um, later on in this podcast too. So correct me if I'm wrong, but to me, this means that being aware and correcting these misconceptions would really allow to embrace neurodiversity as an opportunity in education. When we think about the teacher perspective now, what are challenges when addressing neurodiversity in the classroom and how can they be overcome? A lot of these kinds of challenges aren't going to be overcome by individuals, unfortunately. A lot of these issues are related to systems and structures and barriers that people might receive to individualized support. Uh, but in terms of what a teacher in a classroom can think of is um, some awareness of something related to a study that we've just recently published in terms of the gap between intent and action. And we did a study looking at um, educators in higher education who were very much, had very expertise and awareness of autism 
and uh, had a very positive attitude to accommodating students. But when that came to actually being able to place changes and accommodations and put things into place, it, the, the intent was there, but the action was not as consistent. So really having a lot of self-awareness and self-reflection about even if you do have an open mind towards these things, what that then, making sure that that's not a barrier to actually making changes for, for students. And individualized support is, is really key in supporting uh, students and people of any age, really, in whatever situation. Uh, but often, particularly in earlier uh, periods of schooling, a child may not actually have a diagnosis yet. So sometimes the teacher is the first person or one of the first people to acknowledge some of the challenges that a child might be facing. So another way to really enhance that support and offer it more widely is to have a recognition of the different presentations of neurodiversity. Often what uh, we teach is very much a stereotyped perspective of what things like autism or ADHD might look like. They don't necessarily recognize other genders and how they present with these kinds of conditions. So particularly that stereotype of ADHD being hyperactive little boys that fidget and can't sit still in their seats. This is not a true representation of ADHD in girls very often. Uh, so having that awareness of different presentations behaviorally um, relating to um, you know, different genders, different racial, cultural backgrounds as well. We can have some diversity and presentation there. So an open mind uh, and a consideration of what challenges students experience and what the root causes of that might be um, is also really useful. And something for perhaps older periods of schooling and definitely for higher education is inviting students to co-collaborate on curriculums. This is really, really important to have their voice and their contribution. And having neurodivergent voices within that conversation is really, really important as well. So you raised the point about individualized support for students and acknowledge potential barriers with that. So do students who are neurodivergent in different ways then require different approaches of instruction or are there, say, universal principles in learning and teaching that are beneficial for all students? There isn't really a neurodivergent approach to curriculum, but there are um, obviously the universal design for learning is an incredibly useful tool that does benefit many neurodivergent students. But the benefit of this is that it also benefits every student across the board. Uh, and that's one of the things that we've seen looking at pedagogical research. Anything that's put in place to support neurodivergent students also benefits neurotypical students as well, uh, who might just might not have a diagnosis, but might benefit from different ways of instructions and um, different types of assessments and things like this. Uh, one of the other kind of things that is useful is um, this idea of culturally relevant pedagogy started from a discussion of involving students with different racial and cultural backgrounds to uh, co-collaborate on curriculum. And if we think of the neurodivergent community as another type of culture, and it definitely does have its own culture internally, 
involving the neurodivergent community in that process and having that kind of a culturally relevant pedagogy will be really, really useful as well. But having said that, individual support is still a very fundamentally useful tool for neurodivergent students, um, particularly for older students, having the non-medical helpers as part of the DSA here in the UK is, is very, very important for many students. So the point about culturally relevant pedagogy is an important one and really shows how when we think about inclusivity in education, we need to pay attention to a variety of factors that interact with each other. Now, can you share any success stories on how planning inclusive teaching has benefited all students? Definitely um, within the higher education context, the pinnacle of this has to be things like lecture capture and putting captions on lectures. It's a very clear example how something that was brought in as a disability accommodation benefits all of our students, whether they have caregiving responsibilities, whether they have uh, employment requirements and commitments that they need to make in order to be able to study. It benefits everybody across the board. That kind of flexibility is essential. Um, Personally, within my own work, we have, uh, as you know, in psychology, we have a lot of group work and it's a requirement of a lot of our courses, Mm -hmm. but this can often be a challenge for any student, um, let alone a student that might have communication differences or potential social anxiety or a multiple constellation of different things could make this more challenging. Uh, And one of the things I've done in my own courses is to have a layer of organization around group projects and group work tasks. And um, I personally use Microsoft Planner to do this and to organize tasks in silos. And then that shows students discrete tasks, discrete activities and discrete roles that can be taken to navigate the group project. I also then give them role designations with descriptions And then say, look, if these are the kinds of things that you like to do, then this particular role will suit you. If you like data analysis, if you like working with data uh, and these kind of very concrete tasks, pick this role. These are the kinds of things that you will need to do within it. So it's very clear. uh, It's got very discrete boundaries about what is and isn't your responsibility. Mm -hmm. If you're really into writing, if you love research and you love to, you know, coalesce journal articles, then take this role. Then there's rules for editors and so on and so forth. So you have no communication issues and no opportunities for misunderstanding. And students can see these are the skills that I have that I want to bring into this. This is the role that I should take and the strengths that I can give to the group. Really helps them navigate um, interpersonal politics and internal politics of managing group tasks as well. It's a very important point or interesting point also from um, learning science perspective, right? What you want to achieve is you want to break um, down abstract tasks into more concrete chunks. Um, when, for example, in when we're learning, for example, abstract concepts or ideas, then also one of the learning strategies that's really helpful is uh, concrete examples to find concrete examples of specific, very abstract ideas. And this really helps students to get a better understanding of the topic. But it also works for organizational aspects. So for time management aspects or for managing projects. Um, So it's really interesting how you can link those two things. A really important part of that as well is um, concrete examples really benefit neurodivergent students as well. 
And, you know, sometimes as teachers, we're reluctant to give examples of coursework for the obvious example that then students then feel it's a pro forma and they just create work based on that. But particularly for neurodivergent students, it can alleviate anxiety. It can clarify instructions. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to lift content, but it gives mm-hmm. us a basis to work off of. Sometimes that void of abstract possibilities can be very, very intimidating and very difficult to navigate. So concrete examples are particularly useful for the students that we're talking about. That's great. So far, we have mainly focused on neurodivergent students. What about neurodivergent teachers? What kind of support can increase their work performance and help them navigate their responsibilities? A lot of this is going to come down to a workplace culture. So again, these aren't necessarily things that are within the control of the individual, but um, you know, higher up kind of layers of organization that create an open and inclusive discourse around disability, neurodivergence, uh, means people will be willing to disclose uh, or share a diagnosis. And thus, changing that workplace environment can lead to a lot of improved well-being, openness and acceptance, uh, and reduces things like bullying and stigma and bias, ideally in a perfect world. But in terms of the individual, allowing flexibility, particularly in working patterns or in working methods, where possible is really useful, Um, allowing people to focus on special interests. If you have somebody with a special skill and a special gift, you don't want to deviate them away from that. You want to take advantage of what they can give to the community and to your team in particular. Um, Avoiding unpredictability in working schedules uh, and tasks is obviously going to be a huge one, and that benefits everybody, of course. Uh, encouraging people to find community as well it was one of the motivations that we had for um, the neurodiversity network is allowing people to speak and share in a knowing environment to people that understand what's going on uh, but also in terms of for both students and for staff having awareness programs that are actually led by neurodivergent people whether that is students or fellow team members um, but having people with that first person, lived experience is incredibly important as well. Yeah, I think that's great. I think it is really vital to highlight how both uh, neurodivergent students and neurodivergent staff can be supported in education. And I think your neurodiversity network that we have already briefly mentioned in the beginning of this episode, and you just mentioned it again, really aims in providing such support and resources. Can you tell us a bit more about the network? So this kind of began from some informal conversations um, that just made me realize that there's a lot of, obviously we have a lot of neurodivergent students, but there are also a lot of neurodivergent staff in higher education in particular. Uh, If you think about people that have specific special focused interests, going into academia is a perfect way to embrace them. (laughs) Um, So there are a lot of us out there and we don't necessarily know each other until it just happens to come up in conversation. So the network is really a collective of interdisciplinary staff and students uh, who all have lived experience of neurodiversity, whether that is personal experience or families or other loved ones. Um, And what we're really endeavoring to do is to share resources, to share information and to share research about neurodiversity within our university community and beyond as well. We particularly want to co-collaborate with students 
and staff for workplace benefits and for curriculum benefits as well, and um, connecting with the community outside of the university as well, because we don't want to get too myopic. We know that the neurodiversity community within the university is only reflective of a portion of our community, for sure. Um, yeah, and it's been an amazing opportunity, particularly to see staff and students coming together and uh, sharing advice and sharing tips, particularly for our PGRs, who are kind of our postgraduate research students who sit within those two worlds almost. Um, and I hopefully are not being caught between the two cracks of, of those different communities and the different demands that that they experience through both of them. Uh, but yeah, it's there are now other professional organizations that have neurodiversity networks and other universities are um, joining in with this idea. So the more professional workplaces that can do this, I think the better is it is for everybody to have an inclusive and um, opening, welcoming culture and environment. We will add a link um, to the Neurodiversity Network um, to this podcast episode uh, for everyone to browse the resources. They are fantastic. So yeah, thank you, Chiara, for putting this together um, with, I think, um, Elliot um, Spät. Um, so you two are doing this together. So for the final question, I always like to ask my guests for practical recommendations. So if you had one tip for teachers who are working towards making their teaching accessible to all students, including neurodivergent students. And one tip for neurodivergent teachers on how to navigate challenges. What would your tips be? Well, you said one tip, but I challenge you to stop me here. In terms of supporting neurodivergent students, the biggest one I think would be give neurodivergent students the space to reveal themselves and to self-advocate and to ask for the support that they need. Um, and open your minds about what neurodiversity looks like, but also the possibilities that these students are capable of. Um, integrating their interests into their education is obviously a beautiful way to do this. Um, and consider what parts of their behavior might be caused by a difficult situation uh, and then being placed in a context that is challenging for them rather than them having some kind of internal challenge themselves. Obviously, there will be things that make how they interact with the world challenging, but often a lot of the things that we see that are externalizing behaviors or negative behaviors, particularly in places like the classroom, are not inherent within the child, but within the context that they're being placed into. Uh, and this can result, unfortunately, in a vicious cycle of things like stigma and bias and trauma to the child as well. Inherently tied up to this is this idea of masking and camouflaging which I think as teachers is an incredibly useful thing to be aware of. Uh, and their adaptive behaviors, well, not necessarily adaptive, the behaviors that people adopt to either suppress or to hide aspects of their condition or their diagnosis, or their things that they do to fit in. So it can be behaviors that they adopt or aspects of their own behaviors that they suppress. This can be incredibly fatiguing for any individual by the end of the day of having to mask and camouflage and hide who you are. It's inherently quite upsetting to think about um, and has a lot of impact on a child and their family and the people around them. In terms of neurodivergent teachers, I would say be patient with the neurotypicals. 
they don't always know what they don't know and they don't necessarily realize what they might be doing to people around them who are neurodivergent. Um, and self-advocate, it's exhausting, but it is so important that our voices are heard. So please do find your community and seek support. I don't think I've been in any community that is as supportive as the neurodivergent community, particularly on places like Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit. We're all out there uh, and just reach out if you need any support. Thank you so much, Kiara, for joining our podcast episode today and for sharing your expertise and your tips. So much food for thought. So thank you for that. I wish you a wonderful and successful academic year. And um, I hope to hear much more about the Eurodiversity Network soon. Thank you for having me. <laughs> to all our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay safe and until next time. Goodbye. This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists.